and good afternoon and welcome to Lambda Weekly. I'm Dave Taffet here in the studio with Laurent Landis and the late Patty Fink. And uh, our guests today are Adriana Belden and uh, Robert Emery. They're both here to talk about preserving the history of the LGBT community in North Texas and an upcoming LGBT history conference to be held in Dallas and Denton this February. Collecting LGBT history began about, oh, 10 years ago with the creation of an organization called the Dallas Way, and UNT started collecting LGBT history on its own. The two met and fell in love, and it was a romantic story. Driana is the Assistant Dean for External Relations at UNT Libraries, and Robert is uh, a GOP, a generally old person. Welcome. Well, you, you could never know by looking, but yes. <laughs> we know by looking. <laughs> um, tell us, Robert, you're one of the founders of Dallas Way. Tell us, how did that get started? Uh, George Harris and Jack, Jack Evans and George Harris, uh, two icons in Dallas, um, said, this is something we need to do. We need to re, uh, record the rich history of Dallas. Too many wonderful things have happened in this town, have, have originated in this town, that before it's too late, we'd better get it written down. And we started writing. We started writing. We started collecting. Uh, we started organizing and we put together a first board of directors in 2011. And oh, then it we, is 10 years. It, you're exactly right. I it was, was 10 saying years 10 ago. years, but mm-hmm. you're exactly right. God time flies. <laughs> and then we met some wonderful people at the University of North Texas who were already doing the same thing. They had decided that they wanted to be the largest collector of LGBT history, and they were well on their way. So we fit right in there, and it has been uh, a a great working relationship since day one. Okay, so Adriana, UNT, it's a state university in Texas, wants to be the biggest collector of LGBT history. That's right. E- yeah. Explain. Well, there, well, the reality is, I mean, LGBT history is American history. It's a human history. It's part of the experience of American life. So, yes, yeah, we know that. Yes, well, well, some people, they, you know, but it's good to say it because it's true. Um, and there's a lot of Texas universities collecting it right now, but I think we were probably, if not the first, one of the first actively collecting. And um, at the time that we first we started interacting with Dallas Way, which has been a fantastic partnership for us, um, we were already um, behind the scenes. We had been talking with the Resource Center because, of course, they had that fabulous collection of 435 boxes of materials from the 1940s to the present, and they were looking for a home to be the, the archives for that collection. And so they were talking to various universities and we were working with them. And then um, it was fun because – go ahead. I was going to say, and I don't want to just race over that. That was Phil Johnson's collection. Phil just passed away over the last year. Uh, And what Phil did was from the 1940s, anytime there was a news item about anything that happened that was gay, which was usually – if it got into the newspaper, it was usually a police raid, he'd clip it out. And he saved these wonderful clippings from the Dallas Morning News and the Times-Herald going way back to World War II. He saved magazines. He saved just all kinds of stuff. I mean, you can tell me better. He had all kinds of photographs. 
Right. So there's just amazing things in that collection. And I, from what I understand from Cece and the history of how Cece Cox, who's the executive director of Resource Center, is what was happening is Phil Johnson donated his materials there. And then a lot of other people who had things were like, well, I don't know what to do with this stuff. I need to give it someplace. So a lot of people gave materials to Resource Center Dallas. So it kind of built over time. Um, but they don't really, I mean, they're more in a you know, different aspect of nonprofits and you know, social, social services. So it wasn't really a good fit for them to be, you know, archivists and taking care of these things and making them available for researchers. Um, but that, so we were talking with them and then we started talking with Dallas Way. And um, Dallas Way was like, well, we really kind of want to know where this big collection, Phil Johnson's things, and where it's going to go. And we couldn't say anything because we were in the middle of negotiations with them. So that was interesting time. And uh, at the same time before that, um, we were talking uh, with Robert Moore when he was still uh, with Dallas Voice. And so early on, he agreed to donate all the paper copies of the newspaper and give us rights to put it online for free public access for research. And so that's been a great partnership for us as well. Mm -hmm. So we're still working with Dallas Voice to put on more current issues. So it's a great amount of research and it's one of the I've heard Morgan Geringer who's the head of our special collections say that our LGBT collections are one of the most used resources that we have in our archives it's very highly in demand for people writing books working on dissertations theses that type of thing Patty were you gonna oh I was just gonna add that the looking up things in the voice has just been a godsend for active activists you know looking for when did this happen so I can get this right yeah, you know um, what it is means for me? I don't have to travel down to the Dallas Public Library, guess when something happened, uh, go to a librarian, ask them to pull out paper copies of the Dallas Voice, then with my camera take pictures of those pages when I finally find it, then drive back to my office, then start writing. I can just go online to the UNT archives if I'm looking for something back in the you know 1980s when things were not online because there wasn't an online to be. Um, and I can just look it up, and in five minutes I have it. And I'm saying five minutes because sometimes it's guessing and doing searches for odd names that I don't remember, and you know. And Phil Johnson was a treasure. He's a hero to all of us, and he is a great lesson that any marginalized community must take responsibility themselves for recording their history. So if any of your listeners are outside the LGBTQ community, you still, if you are a member of a marginalized, underrepresented community, you have a responsibility because if you don't do it, it will disappear. You have to document it yourself or to get lost. You yep. must. Yep, yep. So... What besides writings or what other type of um, documents or that you, you are you all collecting pictures or anything like that artifacts? Everything that represents the history of a community. So it's photographs. I think there's video, some videos. I believe um, lots of um, sort of artifacts like T-shirts, uh, plac placards, things that have people might have you. carried. You, I have some. They're in my car. Don't leave without <laughs> giving them to you. Yeah, David, David told me earlier, I have things for you to take back. Mm -hmm. Back up to UNT. But, yeah, so it, it's all types of materials. It could be anything that represents the history of what's happened and what's important and what needs to be saved for the future for research and for people to understand. I'll tell you what, um, one of the time. posters that I have for you, Bethel Bana, the uh, LGBT Jewish congregation, 
Um, back in the 80s, one of the first events that they did, and when I say they, because it's before my time with uh, the congregation, uh, did a New Year's party. And it was the only New Year's event. And it was what gave Beth Elbanah the seed money to actually get going. Okay. So, yeah, this was like 1988 or something. Do you have a photo of that event? I don't. Okay. I don't, but I can ask people if they have any supporting documentation or photographs or anything from that period. And on the subject of photographs, they're, of course, very valuable. If they have the people who are included in the photo listed on that photo and the reason for the gathering that created this photo, we collect a lot of photos and we throw them all away because a photo is worthless to us unless it has the people in it identified and the reason that they are together identified. So that answers my next question. What are you all still collecting and how do you decide what to keep and what not to keep? We, we're careful that we don't keep anything that is redundant. So if uh, Lerone has given us something and then Patty gives us something that's the same, we throw it away. Uh, we, we're collecting everything that we keep mostly the things that fill in the gaps of our history. And we have a slightly different take on it from an archival sort of research perspective. Um, usually when you look at a collection that someone has of any kind that they come in, very often there'll be like a, you know, a big set of photographs and maybe 30% of them are identified and maybe the other ones aren't and the people that have it at that point in time don't know. We generally, I think, try to take the whole thing in because um, we have been digitizing a lot of materials. And, you know, in the Portal of Texas History or the UNT Digital Library, we have a lot of un unidentified photographs. But putting them online, the great thing that happens is people will contact us. We get, I'm not joking, like 20 messages a day with people that want to update information they find in our online mm -hmm. collections and like, they'll oh, say that's hey, my brother they will yeah they'll say that's my grandfather or oh that's my friend so and so and they give you enough information you can you know email them and talk to them and we change the records sometimes based on information that people give us so and we look at it as like it's part of the whole collection this person kept it all of these things for some reason and you know just because the person that currently has it can't figure it out doesn't say somebody that wants to research in that collection in the future might be related to the a family or people involved in it and may be able to figure out and add to the story of what that collection means and what it's about sure so. and i could have been more clear too a photograph of four people doesn't mean anything but if you back up a little bit and it's, there's a sign or a banner that identifies anything yeah that's a keeper so what kind of events are you keeping uh, a family picnic is not generally of interest no but the family the picnic might be if the family picnic has a picture of the white rock lake uh, spillway behind it or if it has a if it's downtown dallas and we can see the skyline on that day which is different every day that kind of thing so it doesn't have to be some major event that you are uh, that needs to be captured and you'll collect oh no gosh personal life stories okay good that's good to hear that's our full history because i remember back for the deal 
we, we and then uh, I just moved back to Dallas um, from D.C. And I was at like decades ago. There was decades ago, literally. So I was at the mall and I saw, this was at North Park Mall, and I saw a lesbian couple walking, holding hands. That was the first time I had ever seen a same-sex couple in public walk and share. And again, this was mid-90s. So that in itself, I know it's not like, okay, it's not newsworthy, but it, it has somebody captured that and zoomed out and people were looking. That To me, that was kind of amazing. It's historic. Yeah. Especially when you timestamp it. Okay, now I can see that because it explains where we are at a certain point in time. It wasn't until the mid-90s that a same-sex couple would even dare walk in someplace safe like North Park. Um, you know, holding hands. Uh, so it tells part of the story. Triana, one thing that you said that you just, you know, off the top, you know, just kind of just let this go. Yeah, and people are doing research. What are they researching? I find that fascinating because... Uh, President Trump wanted We're in, and when I say we, Laron, you're in some of the pictures. Patty, you're in pictures. I'm in some pictures. I don't think of myself as historic. You are historic. I think I think it is historic. Um, well, the kind of things that we have going on is, um, for example, um, Wesley Phelps is someone we we have uh, research fellowships we provide to people that are scholars doing research on various topics, and some of the ones that we've awarded for LGBT history. Are like, for instance, Dr. Wesley Phelps, um, when he was writing his dissertation, he's been doing research about Baker versus Wade, one of the you know seminal mm-hmm. court cases heard by the Supreme Court that has influenced so much civil rights um, law regarding LGBT community. So that's his area of in- interest for research. Um, we've had people come that w- are doing documentaries that want to license things sometimes for documentaries that they're doing about LGBT community, and we also even just students. Uh, you know, I think of one of the. Um, students who's now a, a faculty member at UNT, you know, Dr. Karen Wisely, um, she wrote her whole dissertation about the LGBT history of North Texas, and she did it with the collections that we've had, you know, in partnership with Dallas Way, and those things were invaluable to her, I know. When okay, she was, so here I'm going to be my mother. Me and, and my yeah. wife. Yeah. Oh, the, oh right. cool. Yeah, she's, she's terrific. Okay, Personally. here I'm going to be my mother. Yes. So she's a doctor of gay. What do you do with that? What do you do with it? Well, I don't understand. No, um... In getting that degree, where do you go from there? Well, her her his, her degree is a PhD in history, so mm-hmm. she is an excellent historian. Okay. I mean, so she you know she could research anything, but this is what interests her, and it interests a lot of other people, and it's important topic to write about. So, mm-hmm. and, that's, and she's certainly not alone. We have a lot of um, you know students that are working on their masters or PhDs, even at other universities, that are interested in using this collection because it's one that's available and they can find it, and it's a great. And other universities don't have anything like this. No, I think a lot of universities do. I think, you know, I know University of Houston's been collecting in Texas. I know Rice has been, um, and certainly I'm sure others as well. But there's a lot of universities out there that have been collecting. But UNT is a leader in the art and science of digitization of LGBTQ history. Plus in storing things, you have a whole cold storage building. We do. We have a whole remote remote facility that's just for storing archival collections um, that's, you know, got the right humidity the right temperatures for optimal preservation of historic items. And so um, things like the old copies of Dallas Voice or any other magazines that you've gotten, you're actually keeping those even though they're digitized? Absolutely. One yes. copy? 
Yes, a copy. <laughs> and uh, in terms of who else is researching, we were delighted early in the formation of the Dallas Way that the costume designer and set designers of the Dallas Buyers Club contacted us and said, we need locations, we need t-shirts, uh, and we were able to provide them and we were thrilled. I recognize some of the yes, t-shirts. In, in some of those t-shirts may have been yours. <laughs> I think some of them were. Or many of them were Bruce Monroe's. Um, it, and when I ask you that question, you know, okay, so she's a doctor of gay. I'm being facetious there, but it also comes from this awe that, okay, so we, I remember going to that party. It was a lot of fun. Uh, you know, and by party, I mean that black tie dinner, that black tie uh, event before the event, uh, a um, fundraiser for any number of things about the AIDS epidemic. What? Well, I guess I can think of one thing that we can learn from studying those things. At the beginning of this pandemic, everybody in the news was saying, and we've never been through anything like this. And so we'd come on the air and go, hmm, I kind of remembered like I have. Yeah. That right. is one of those things that we can learn from recent LGBT history. Oh, gotcha. Yes. Absolutely. Um, uh, you know, on that, on our uh, our other community radio station in in Dallas, um, earlier this week they featured a um, a series on gay bars mm-hmm. on one of their shows, and um, one of the professors there, actually from Ohio, had done a great deal of research on gay bars and. Um, their transformation really from kind of our safe spaces that's I mean that's what what pulse really hit us when that massacre happened because it, the gay bar is our is our place and and the kind of the evolution of it the loss of lesbian bars the the segregation that happens in gay bars still today right up to today and that's yep. a lot of research I think that uh, and where are they going to go tomorrow like all these bars what are they going to be focusing on and how will they survive in the future? Um, so I think that's very, very interesting because if you take just a simple topic, just one slice of, of LGBTQ life and look at it, you've got to go lots of places to get really the history because one area is not going to tell you about the history of gay bars. Mm-hmm. So I think that's fantastic that we have universities all over the country and of course, UNT leading. Kano in. Thanks you for your pledge to our recent wow. pledge. That's, that's just amazing to me that you could tap all of that information. Yeah. When you're researching a topic that can really, uh, your conclusions and your hypotheses can be shared with others, and we can really learn about where we've been and maybe where we're going. Yes, and David, in terms of PhDs, uh, I hope that you will participate in our history conference in February because Friday's lunch. We'll have a poster session, which is where PhD students learn how to condense their dissertations into an elevator pitch. We're going to talk about uh, the conferences coming up. We need to take a break. You're listening to Lambda Weekly on 89.3 KNON-FM. I'm Dave Taffet here in the studio with the late Patty Fink and Laron Landis. Our guests are Robert Emery and Drianna Belden, and we'll be back with more Lambda Weekly right after this. Hi, I'm Cleve Jones, and you're listening to Lambda Weekly on 89.3 KNON-FM. 
began talking about LGBT history, that was Cleve Jones who founded the Names Project. So uh, it's a while ago since he was on the show. It has been probably ten years, something like that. It was in twenty fourteen. It was the year Wendy Davis ran. Because I gave him a, a Wendy Davis bumper sticker when he was in the studio. <laughs> <laughs> Good way to remember. Uh, this is Lambda Weekly. And we're talking to Drianna Belden. She's the Assistant Dean for External Relations at UNT Libraries. And Robert Emery, who's one of the founders of the uh, LGBT organization, The Dallas Way, that collects Dallas LGBT history. Uh, you have a conference coming up in February. Yes. Tell us about it. In 2019... The Invisible Histories Project, which is a nonprofit working to preserve the LGBTQ history in the Deep South, hosted our inaugural Queer History South conference in Birmingham, Alabama. We were, we thought we were ambitious to imagine that in 90 short days we might be able to attract 50 people to come to Birmingham. Well, we had 115. We were bursting at the seams, and all of that inconvenience of being overcrowded was overcome immediately by the passion, the excitement, the thrill of being together with people of like minds. And we left that conference so pumped that we knew we had to do it again. And now we have a tradition. It'll be every two years at Dallas won the bid for hosting the 2022 conference. And that will happen in February 18, 19 and 20 of 2022. Awesome. Okay, so you're having a conference, and what is it that you're going to be talking about? Uh, we are a collection. Uh, well, we get to have 300 people. We're limited to just 300. Uh, and we will be with professionals and grad students, museum executives, librarians, anyone who is in the business of collecting LGBTQ history. So, I mean, during that, you mentioned the word invisible, and it just made me think of, um, and earlier you were stating the importance of marginalized communities, just our responsibility or anybody's responsibility to document themselves. You know, too often in marginalized communities, there are communities within that larger community, and they get overlooked. So I have a book I bought and read a long time ago about Stonewall, and it has some of the pictures of, you know, the night that Stonewall went down. And then you see this movie that they made about it, and it's completely whitewashed. So, um, do, you, know, they, you know, like Patty was talking about a minute ago about, like, some of the bars. Well, there are Latino gay LGBT bars. There are black LGBT bars. And that's part of that segregation. That's part of our story. Are you all getting submissions from communities of color and even some of the trans community. A lot of I know a lot of people think trans is a new thing. No, that's that's been around for forever. Forever. And they've had their own communities and they're not always shown. Right. The purpose of this conference though is for people to network to learn how the what are the best practices for collecting history. But we have an outreach to make sure that communities who maybe don't have that experience can come and learn. For instance, our Friday opening plenary is a Latinx history opening plenary. So everyone, all everyone participating can hear that and begin to work together. 
our Saturday morning opening plenary is an African-American LGBTQ history opening planning session. Oh, great. And then later in the day, we have a trans history. And that's one of the programs that's open to all 300. There are times that we will break out then into smaller affinity groups. But we were very careful that the times that we were all 300 of us together, one will be devoted to Latinx, one is African-American, one is trans. Awesome. Oh, I thought you were about to say something. (laughs) I I do want to mention also, UNT is my alma mater, so I'm so, so happy that, that. you know, uh, the home of this is, is, is taking care of this. And I think it's also great for any LGBT students there um, who are on campus to know that hey, this is my this is where I go to school and they're doing this. That that's very encouraging. Yeah, and at UNT we're always really proud to say that the largest student organization on campus is Glad. So mm-hmm. um, and it has been for several years. It's uh, pretty large. It's the largest one of all the hundreds of interest groups at UNT. It's the largest student organization. And mm. Dallas College is our host for the conference. We'll be down at their campus downtown. Nice. Oh, nice. Now, last year when you were originally planning this, because the conference was supposed to be this past February, obviously we were having a little pandemic. I hope you both had a very happy pandemic, Uh, but uh, it had to be postponed for a year. You were planning on doing a field trip up to Denton. Is that still in the schedule? Uh, That's not happening because Denton said, (laughs) it was a cute story, our good friends at UNT said, we don't want you to come to UNT because if we do that, then we have to host you. And that means we're going to miss a little bit of the conference down in Dallas so that we're up in Denton early and we don't want to miss a minute of the conference. So can we rethink that? And we were completely planned to take everyone up in buses and uh, be physically on campus. They're going to do something even more creative. They're going to take their program that they would have done in their libraries, and they're going to bring it down to Dallas College, and then all 300 of the participants can see it at the same time. Oh, wow. And they're going to, because as I said before, they are the leader in the art and science of digitization of LGBT history. It's very important when you're having a conference that deals with best practices that you learn from the best. And that's what Saturday afternoon is devoted to. UNT telling us how they do it. Okay, so let's get a little preview, Triana. And and I know you're not involved in... You, you, there are certain things that some people do, certain things that other people do, because there's a lot that goes into this. What are some of the best practices? What are some of the things that you'll be talking... When I say you, I don't know if you'll be making the presentation. But. No, I, I know Morgan Gieringer, who's the head of our special collections at UNT, and Sue Parks, who's the associate dean for special libraries. They've been planning what their afternoon is going to look like. But certainly, um, you know, early on I was involved, and, in, you know, I'm, I'm very involved with our digital libraries and the funding that we receive for those types of things. Um, so I know that they'll be talking about um, our partnership with the Dallas Way and how beneficial that has been. And, uh, you know, the Capacity, um, you know, early on, our digital libraries division was the one digitizing all these things. But Morgan has been so excellent in bringing in all kinds of collections since she started at UNT and with all the LGBT materials that are coming in all the time that, um, you know, she's done a lot to streamline uh, from the archival perspective. 
you know, having the finding aids, which is sort of in the archives world, it's a document that's online that you can see and search through that tells you basically what's in this collection. And she is, um, I can't tell you, just really excellent at it because there's so many, I mean, I know people in archives all over Texas, they're all colleagues, and I know it is not uncommon to have huge, huge backlogs of materials that just sit because it takes a lot of time and effort to do that. And so what what she's done, and I know that she's spoken about a lot professionally, is how she's gone in when things come in, it's her... It is her personal goal for her department that when we bring the collections in within a year, there will be a minimal finding aid online within a year, that they will have gone through and put things in proper storage, that they are stored correctly, and that it's not something that's sitting there for 20 years because you don't have the resources and staff, mm-hmm. which is honestly you know, the case for so many people, um, that she's able to turn that around so quickly. And then also just you know her prioritizing... Um, what from her area gets digitized and um, she's taken over a lot of the responsibilities of that because you know we digitize those materials downstairs in the digital lab but the, the, the hardest part of putting things online is describing it in a way that people can find it and discover it online and so she's got a whole a huge you guys come to UNT this metadata suite that we added a couple years ago she has so many students working for her that she trains and her staff train to describe you know each item that comes in that it's going to be going online so that people can actually say oh okay this is a photograph of David Taffet and you know whatever it might be so um, she does a wonderful job mm-hmm. with that and a wonderful job being a representative for UNT with the Dallas Way and other community groups that we work with. So I'm sure they'll be talking about those relationships and lessons learned and, um, you know, the way that she uh, is, you know, creating these finding aids is, um, you know, is not the typical case, honestly, at a lot of universities, the getting things online so quickly. So she does a great job with that. And the digitization, like I said, I feel like we are the most innovative library in Texas based on all of our history of our web archiving and d- digital preservation and, and the amount of content that we have online now digitized is ever growing and mm-hmm. it's very easy to use very easy to find and we do a, the, the people that work on those things do a great job with that so I know um, using the Dallas Voice Archives um, to me it was just amazing that you took pictures of each page and then it can read each of the pictures I'm not just looking at a page, you know, a photograph of the page, um, I can search for any word on that page and it'll find it, including in ads. So it's recognizing any and all fonts. It's recognizing just all kinds of things that I find amazing. Um, With a t-shirt, with a poster, well, I guess a poster, it would be the wording on the poster. Um, With Dennis Bircher's typewriter, which was the original typewriter we used to Dallas Voice that I donated. How would something like that be on the archives? Um, we have a, a really good, um, you know, libraries have a long history of describing things so people can find them, you know, when they need to do research. You know, I started out with uh, the card catalog, but we've gone on beyond that. You know, we still have card catalogs. But for all the content that goes online, each item has a descriptive record, and we call that metadata for online collections. Mm-hmm. And so um, we follow national standards and have, like, our own slightly different variety we use at UNT, but that correlates with other national standards for how you describe things that are in digital collections. And so it basically will have a title. I mean, a photograph doesn't come to you with a title, but based on the information you know about it, you create something um, you know, something very specific about who's in it if you have that information, but otherwise you might just say, you know, there's a man in an office doing this. And so it's just a way of describing it. And in the description, 
Um, you know, one thing, one thing it's, this also ties into Queer History South because we want this to be a very accessible conference. But, but when you put collections online, you also want them to be accessible to people so that they have some understanding of what it is, if they have vision issues. And so when you have a picture, uh, whether it's a picture, like an actual photograph or a photograph of a T-shirt that you're putting online, part of that description is describing it in a sentence or two as if you were describing it to someone who is blind. Like this is a T-shirt that is blue and has these words on it or it'll be like a picture there's three men standing around a desk and this is so and so and so and so and they're doing this activity but you describe it in a way that you can somebody can actually if they've got a reader um, for their technology assistance they can actually hear a description of what the foot is in the photo and, and then the if you have about. the information like on a t-shirt i would imagine there would be a sentence that says uh, this is from a fundraiser for Resource Center that was held in 1994. Absolutely, like and we that. have date fields. We have, I think, 15 fields that are all can be replicated multiple times depending on how much information and how much you want to put into the record. Mm-hmm. Um, we've, so we've come a long way since microfiche. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, yes, yes. I've used some microfiche, and I can say having things online is much, much nicer for yes, researchers. Okay, so one thing that I know is that when uh, anybody is trying to form a group. Uh, anywhere, and they call HRC or NGLTF up in Washington, they'll say, oh, Dallas must have one of those. Go call them. So a group like the Dallas Way, how unique is that group? Was that a first? or It's certainly a first in Dallas. Uh, we're not familiar with any other city in Texas that has a history-collecting organization. We would certainly love to hear from another city, and we'd be so happy to share absolutely every resource that we have. And in fact, this conference is exactly that. If you have an inkling that you would like to start collecting, that's what this conference is for you. And one of the things that UNT does so brilliantly is the way they work with community partners. And that's going to be one of the things that we'll talk about on Saturday afternoon Mm -hmm. uh, is... Okay, so I have, I have this collection. Um, Patty might say um, of political buttons. I don't know what to do with it. You need somebody like a Morgan or somebody with some experience from the Dallas Way to talk to, and that's what this conference is about. And so many exponential projects and dissertations will be created by this conference and the networking that results from it. That's part of the, that's the most thrilling part. Is so, so this Alabama group that uh, started the conference? Uh huh. Yeah. Are they doing collecting? Oh yes. Okay, so they're similar to the Dallas Way. They are. They are. They collect uh, LGBT history of the Deep South, Invisible Histories Project. So they're broader than just where are they from? Uh, Birmingham, Alabama. From, they're they're broader than just Birmingham. They are broader than Birmingham. Uh. Um, one of the things that you mentioned was museum exhibits. Yes. Uh, on the Saturday night of our conference at 6.39 p.m. when the Sabbath is over, <laughs> we're going to gather at the Dallas Holocaust and Human Rights Museum. The entire museum will be open to our participants. And something very special is that they're going to do guided tours of the vaults. And that's something that the public cannot see. But 
cute story. They, when we were planning this together, and the people at the Holocaust Museum said, "Well, let's see. You all are a lot of uh, museum nerds and library nerds and graduate student research nerds, and that's what we are." This conference sounds like a real nerd fest. <laughs> <laughs> so we we would feel comfortable giving guided tours into our vaults that we don't share and we don't open. I've actually been in their vaults. They're amazing. Oh, can't wait. Cannot yeah. wait. Yeah, uh, just real narrow aisles. Mm-hmm. No room other than maybe to turn around uh, in them. But everything's stored in, um, in drawers uh, that you have to know what it is that you're looking for to find. Uh, but they have some amazing archives there. You will love that. Yeah, this, this uh, conference focuses on the 13 states that make up the South, but attendance is not limited to that so we'll have we all in Birmingham uh, in 2019 we had people from the Mellon Foundation the Carnegie Foundation we had people from Smithsonian Museum down in Birmingham it's it's not just for people who are in the south that's what we're celebrating and that's the story we're trying to elevate but everyone is welcome so if you know a graduate student or a librarian in a state other than the south they are more than welcome to attend. And why don't we take our break? Uh, you're listening to Lambda Weekly on 89.3 KNON FM. I'm Dave Taffet here in the studio with Lauren Landis and the late Patty Fink. And our guests are Drianna Belden and Robert Emery. They are helping helping to or organizing mm-hmm. a, an LGBT history conference coming in February. They're shaking their heads, organizing. Uh, I'm a uh, co-chair of the planning committee for North Texas, Andriana is the chairman of our fundraising. And we'll be back with more Lambda Weekly right after this. Hey, I'm John Carlo. You're listening to Lambda Weekly on 89.3 KNON FM. And this is Lambda Weekly. I'm Dave Taffet here in the studio with Lauren Landis and the late Patty Fink. And it's nice to say in the studio with our guests. Because we just started guests again in the studio, and it feels so good to have people that we can actually talk to, that we can see. Um, Chatty, you were going to... I was going to share a story, a a kind of a classic story from a GGLA perspective, the Dallas Gay and Lesbian Alliance. And we, we our PAC still exists. It's been around since the seven, since 1976, and the political activity of that organization and its in its young days. Um, but one great story about kind of archives is um, when Louise Young, who was one of the early members of DGLA back when it was DGA, um, she had heard on the radio that. President George W. Bush had nominated his attorney, Harriet Meyer, uh, to be a Supreme Court justice, United States Supreme Court justice. And Louise left Raytheon at lunch, where she's an engineer, uh, retired now, um, ran home and went through her boxes in her garage to find the questionnaire that Harriet Meyer had filled out when she was running for city council. I believe she served one term on the Dallas City Council. Um, And and in the questionnaire very clearly supports LGBT people. Um, and 
faxed that to HRC, and within two hours, I saw it as the front page news on CNN.com. <laughs> wow. And that shut down one of the things that immediately shut down that entire nomination. So... That's the power of archiving. <laughs> it, is. it is. And and we like to say archiving is activism. Absolutely. I mean, this was a... She said, we... You know, how can she be be nominated when, you know, she goes against what they believe? Like, and if, she would be awful anyway, but... And if Louise had not stored that, right. kept it safe, and then was able to use it, history might, uh, be, different. might be different. It would certainly be different. Or even remembered that she had it. That's yes, right. and where it might be. Right, <laughs> right. Right, that took some amazing archiving uh, and... and just putting things, files like that in order so that you can go to it and find it. Um, I know at Dallas Voice, I'm the only one who keeps pictures by last name, if it's a person, if it's an event by year and by date and by what the event is. But and I it, bet it, there's somebody who would like to get hold of some of those <laughs> pictures. Uh, do you have them on, in your car? Uh, I'd love to have no, them. I don't have those in my car, but I, and I will actually. Right, but the good them. news is, if you have a garage full of things, and we're thinking about the wonderful Lori Masters, who had a garage full of things, if you will give them to the Dallas Way, who will curate them and give them to UNT, then you don't have to be able to remember what box it's in. They'll create the metadata, so when you need to say, Harriet Meyer, DGA, application form, it's going to come right up. Please give your collections to where the world can share them. Mm-hmm. Trina, is there a, a, can you give the information if somebody wants to just go and look at some of this, um, what UNT does have so far, as far as the um, what would you have on archive, what you have on file? Can the public access it now? Yeah, absolutely. It's all we, That's the whole point of a, of a university library is making sure that things are accessible because it's great to have them, but if nobody knows you have them, it's not really useful. So, you know, we have things that are digital, and so those would be um, easy to find those in both the Texas, uh, the, the portal to Texas history, which is texashistory.unt.edu, and we also have the UNT Digital Library, which I think has more extensive LGBT collections because it's some things that fall outside of Texas. And that is digital.library.unt.edu. And those are all open to the public, free to use. Um, it's easy to find things in there, very And useful. it's easy to find it if you just Google LGBT Texas history. Yeah, it would probably pull it's up one, one of the, the first, first two results. That, well, yeah, okay. and, and the other place to go look, too, is we, I mean, we have extensive collections, and it's going to be a while. Hopefully someday they can all be digitized, but that's... A process that takes time and a lot more money um, but we have extensive collections beyond just what's online and so if you google um, UNT's uh, UNT libraries special collections within their pages there'll be a link to their finding aids and that has got a description um, a high level description of everything that's in the collection so you can search for names you can search for organizations like Dallas Gay Alliance and it'll pull up the different collections that it'll be in and that's great because then if you're a researcher and you're writing a book or you're writing an article you can just request um, that UNT pull those for you and then the next day they would be available in our reading room and people can actually look at them and mm-hmm. use them and you know go through them and see what they need to use and Lerone we're talking about a staggering number of pieces inside UNT's collection are millions of individual pieces. Inside the Dallas Ways collection alone, 
we have over a half a million separate artifacts that are searchable. Wow. So it's a huge collection. And that doesn't include the Dallas Voice collection or the Phil Johnson. That's It's a staggering number. Uh, if Go Google something. I have a question, quick question. Um, the Dallas Way features the Outrageous Oral uh, series where oral histories from people. I was great, happy to participate. I, I was I was unprepared for mine. Um, really, I, I was taking care of Aaron's dad. She was running time. a little bit late. I was. I was. I was. <laughs> I was actually in Louisiana taking care of Aaron's dad, um, and so I was kind of in a rush. And so I, but I remember it. You so were brilliant, warmly. though. Oh, thank you. I, I remember it so warmly. But then I re- I've been thinking about that. Out of all of those, do some does someone go back and listen to those and then tag them for uh, topics that they discuss? I mean, how do you? Yeah, how do you do that? Most scholars are not interested in a video like that. What they need is word searchable. So we go back and annotate, um, dictate every word of yours. And, oh. and put it into a file. Oh. That's what we researchers want. We transcribe the entire thing. Oh, wow. And you can find those all on our YouTube page, The Dallas Way, on YouTube. Nice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's a lot of work. Well, it's great to make it accessible. And that's another <laughs> thing about this Queer History South Conference is all the things that we're doing to make sure that it's accessible to people. Um, and one of the ways we're doing that is having um, sign language interpreters for folks that may have hearing issues. But to me, from my perspective, as uh, coming from academia, is just the price, the low price that we are charging people to get in. It's a great rate. It's uh, $60 for students and retired folks or folks that have um, economic issues. It's, I think, um, one twenty. Uh, it's 175 if you have institutional support. A one twenty-five if you don't, and we have a special uh, way to participate if you are someone who doesn't want to dig deep into the weeds of the best practices, but you'd like to see the opening plenaries and you'd like to attend the evening events. Then you can join us for a mere eighty dollars. I also want to mention that the Weston Dallas Downtown is our host hotel absolutely beautiful hotel it's immediately adjacent to dallas college so if we have rain you can (laughs) still make your meetings and still look fabulous and and i want to mention that the institutional support that you're talking about is not the institution that patty lives in no no i'm talking about a, a university institution or a museum institution yes yeah but the cost is really great, and I think we're going to have you know I, I, no problem getting 300 people. Um, and so I think there's going to be a lot of people very interested in coming. I know as the chair of the fundraising um, efforts for the conference, in talking to funders, uh, foundations, um, one of the people I talked to, um, he was amazed at the low cost of this conference because he's used to going to history conferences. You know, a lot of the conferences I go to are – Five hundred, eight hundred, nine hundred dollars just to register, and so there's going to be a lot of folks that see this as a great opportunity to learn um, new things and network and engage with people for just a really um, very reasonable cost. Where do you register? Uh, there's a website. Um, Invisible Histories uh, has got off of their website. You can just Google Queer History South, and it'll pull it up. Registration's not open yet, but it should be in about what a month, month and a half, I believe. Yeah, just a couple of weeks. Yeah, so it'll be available very soon. Um, and we'll remind people. We do, but remember Queer History South? Remember the Dallas Way? 
you can find us in a lot of different ways and we want to hear from you um it's Oh, go ahead. Is there any areas that I know you have like a, you know, like you said, over a million uh, different artifacts or or, um, documents and so forth. But is there any areas that you wish you had more of? Absolutely. The trans community is not well practiced at collecting their history. the Latinas community has been terrific, but we want to reinforce that organization and we want to help them with a relationship with an institution that can store it and digitize it. Uh, the African-American community is busy collecting their history, but we have not yet uh, recognized who that is that we can work with to uh, help them more. They, they, they may be well on their way, we're not aware of it yet. But that's why we have a conference to bring people together. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things I wish we had archived were some of our early shows. Um, oh, sometime yeah. in the early 90s, Robert was on the show. He was appearing in an all-male version of Steel Magnolias, and they did a whole scene from it on the show, which is the only time that scene ever got heard. Yeah. Because... Uh, well, we did the show, and we had a very successful run, but when we wanted to uh, relaunch the show... Oh, we that's had, what it was. Right. Yeah, yeah right. we had right. a very, very successful run at the Greer Garson Theater at SMU. Uh, sold out houses continually. but And because it was so successful, we, we thought we must remount it. So the first thing I did was write to Robert Harling, the playwright, and said, uh, please come to our event. We're going to relaunch it. It was wildly successful. And I did not hear from Mr. Harling. I heard from Mr. Harling's New York lawyers (laughs) (laughs) who said, uh, no, you will not be doing that again. And uh, thank you very much. Wow. Wow. Did he give an excuse or a reason? No, absolutely none. Because it's not like he's not gay. I I wouldn't speak to that exactly, although I... Fairly certain he's a member of the community, and but you, he but, wrote Steel Magnolias, yes, right? <laughs> but uh, that issue is a subject for another radio talk show about how <laughs> how those people who are in our community are sometimes run from us the fastest. Yeah. Robert will be bringing his attorney to that, to that show. <laughs> but I wish we had that archived, and oh, you know, man. we simply were happy to be going out over the air at that point in KNON's history. Mm-hmm. That would be fun. Um, you know, the typewriter. I keep going back to that typewriter. It has such memories for me. Uh, it was Dennis Vircher, who was the um, editor of Dallas Voice, the first editor. Uh, he died in I think two thousand six. And that was the typewriter he used until Dallas Voice went digital. But he always kept it on his desk. So after he died, I took it and kept it on my desk until I gave it to uh, the Dallas, not the Dallas Voice, to UNT. Because I tried using it one time. The power went off in our building. And uh, so I said, well, I can keep working. I pulled out the typewriter and I typed an article that was about a page long. (laughs) Everybody looked at me and started laughing. I said, what? They said, well, how are you going to get that into the computer? 
Right. <laughs> I said, I guess I'm going to have to retype it. Yeah. Technology yeah. 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 The beauty of digitization, though, David, is that that, li- that typewriter can be photographed from not all 360 degrees of the angle, but certainly half of that so that any scholar anywhere in the world with a modem can pull up that typewriter, rotate it 360 degrees, then also the other 360 degrees Mm -hmm. vertically and horizontally, and see that. So you could also visit UNT, make an appointment, get into their cold storage, and have it brought to you. But if you are a scholar in Afghanistan, you can see that typewriter. You know, I I just thought it was one of those artifacts that it has significant meaning. It does. I, I, yes. I think any typewriter at this point is a major <laughs> artifact. I don't care whose it is. I can't remember the last time I was seen a typewriter. The last time I saw one was this morning. <laughs> oh, wow. I have three. Wow. 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 So, uh, yeah. Um, and in fact, on one of them, I wrote my original articles for Dallas Voice because what we would do was, uh, if you were freelance, you would type, and I started off freelance, you would type an article up, bring it to the paper. They had a scanner that would scan uh, into some word processor of some sort. You had to go back and change all of the characters that uh, it didn't read correctly. Mm. And then that would be cut and pasted literally onto pages that we brought to the printer. Wow. And another aspect of our conference is that the last census showed that over one-third of all LGBT-identified citizens in the United States live in the South. That's the largest percentage in the nation. It is. And the story we want to elevate is that, yes, Lots of things have happened in New York, L.A., San Francisco, and Chicago. But the South is where a lot of important history and a whole lot of important advances in LGBTQ equality have initiated. One-third of LGBTQ citizens live in the South. And I also, I don't know the number, but I also read that most of the LGBT parents live in the South also. That would make statistical yeah. sense. Actually, yeah. it was Texas has more LGBT yeah. people raising children yeah. than any other state. Than any other state. That, okay, that's, so, that's amazing. So now your listeners know that and we know that, but that is a story that must be shared with the world mm-hmm. because a lot of people get a lot of flack for staying in the South. Why don't you flee? Why don't you go somewhere right. where life is better? Life is pretty darned wonderful right here in the South if you know how to find it. And we're here. We're here. We're here, and we're very, very strong. I want to thank you both for being here. The hour's coming to a close real quickly. Um, Thank you, and come back before the conference, and then a little bit after, or come back again afterwards, because I want to hear... Really, really, really quick, if somebody wants to donate something or submit yes, something, I to get that in there. Who, who do they contact? Exactly. Um, we, don't, we don't have it on the Queer History South website, but we've got a great sponsor deck, so they can contact me. I'm chair of fundraising, um, Drianna, D-R-E-A-N-N-A dot Belden, B-E-L-D-E-N, 
at unt.edu. And we've got sponsorship levels from $1,000 up to $30,000 with different benefits. And we're glad to share that we've got a great uh, document that explains all those different levels. But we've got a lot of people interested in it. And we really are going to need it because of those low registration rates. We need to, we need support from the community. It'll be wonderful. Wonderful. And that's why I say come back again uh, before the conference and we'll talk a a little bit about that. Thank you. We're going out with some music from uh, Lisa Messiah and we'll be back with more Lambda Weekly next week.